Turn in your Bibles, if you will, to James chapter 4. We continue our study of James, James 4. This morning we'll look at verses 4 to 6. James 4, 4 to 6. There's nothing quite as troubling as marriage problems. Some of you know that only too well. There's something about the intimacy, the, the closeness, the oneness of marriage that makes trouble in this relationship exceedingly painful. In fact, I heard once a study about what causes how much stress in people's lives. It had a whole bunch of things, of uh, different levels of stress that they created in people's life. And interestingly, the, the uh, a marriage problem, trouble in your marriage, the breakdown and breakup of a marriage, produced the same amount of stress as the death of a spouse. That's how serious it is. Bitter experience that many of you have gone through. But that bitter experience of marriage problems forms the backdrop of our text this morning. This text speaks to us in those emotionally charged terms of a marriage having big, severe problems, breaking up. Let me read it, and then we'll talk about it, and I'll explain. Verses 4 to 6. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit He caused to live in us envies intensely? but he gives us more grace. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now there are three lessons I want us to learn here, and the first one is not really spelled out in the text, but you have to understand this truth, or else you can't understand what the text has been saying. So I've made it my first point, and that's this. That God loves us as his bride. God loves us as his bride. In the past 12 months, I have done more weddings than I've ever done uh, in any 12-month period in my uh, ministry of 20 years plus. It's been delightful to see all these brides and grooms in their wedding day and to walk through these things with them uh, in preparation for that. Uh, it's a, it's a, that's a wonderful time. You probably remember the day that you got married. Your wife was never more beautiful than that day. You never believed in your husband more than that day. You remember how you felt? I mean, I've, I've seen it again and again. People, young couples overwhelmed with their love for their spouse. Now I ask you, in that moment of wonder and joy, didn't you know that your wife had problems? Didn't you know that your husband was not perfect? Well, sure you knew. I mean, nobody thinks that their spouse is perfect, even when they marry him. But it doesn't matter. <laughs> Your love overwhelmed, overshadowed those things. As you love your wife, as your bride, your husband, as your groom. That's how God loves us. Not that he doesn't know what's wrong. He loves us like uh, like a bridegroom loves his bride. 
You can't begin to understand this passage until you understand that profound love of God. Throughout the scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, God calls his people in these terms. He calls us his bride, the bride of the Lord, the bride of Christ. It's the most intimate, intense description that he has given us to express how much he loves us. There's a beautiful picture in the Old Testament I want you to look at with me for a minute. I'll just read it. I won't comment a lot on it. But here's where this picture is picked up in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel 16, if you want to turn or else listen as I read a little bit. Here the Lord tells, in, in kind of metaphorical terms, he tells about how he came to love his people. And about his relationship to his people, his, who he calls his bride. And he starts out, uh, and I'll pick up at about the middle of the, the uh, second verse, I guess it is. This is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. This is his people, Israel. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite. Your mother was a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut. You were not washed with water to make you clean. Nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of those things. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Now here's a wonderful picture of, of the Lord's love right here. He says, you were nothing. You were the child, the unwanted child of a bunch of pagans who threw you out in a field to die when you were born. That's what they did before abortion was legal. You know, th throughout the centuries, people have discarded unwanted children. Still happens sometimes. Find a baby in a trash can. God says, I found you in the trash can. Left to die. Now that's a picture of love and rescue. My, how the Lord loves us. That's only the beginning. Let me keep reading. Then I passed by, verse 6, and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as, I, as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. Your breasts were formed. Your hair grew. You who were naked and bare. Then listen. Later, I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord. And you became mine. I bathed you with water and washed the blood from you and put ointment on you. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewelry. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. I put a ring in your nose and earrings on your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your clothes were fine linen and costly fabric and embroidered cloth. Your food was fine flour, honey, and olive oil. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. 
and your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because of the splendor, because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. What a picture. God not only rescued an abandoned baby, but when the baby grew up, he took her as his bride and lavished upon her every good thing, making her a beautiful queen. And what is this we're talking about? How God loves his people. You. Well, it's not just an Old Testament picture. We find the same picture in the New Testament, except in the New Testament we find very stated very explicitly the, the links to which God went to clean up and adorn his bride. In Ephesians chapter 5, let me read a couple of verses. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Same picture as the Old Testament, only now brought into terms in ter uh, for us to understand what was it that drove Jesus to the cross. He went there to give himself for the sake of his bride to cleanse her and make her whole. God loves us as his bride. Over here in James 4, if we get back to James 4 a minute, God doesn't just stop with giving us this picture of his love for his people, powerful as that is. He goes on to talk about how much he longs for our affection back. When you got married, wasn't that how you were with your spouse? Didn't you not just love her, but you expected her to love you too? You didn't just love him, you, you knew he loved you, otherwise you wouldn't have gotten married, right? Forsaking all others, keep yourself only unto him as long as you both shall live. I mean, it's part of the vows. That confidence, part of the covenant. We love and we are loved in return. Well, that's exactly how God feels about his bride in verse 5 of our text. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? That's a hard verse to translate, but the meaning is not confusing. Let me read you another, another translation. Or do you suppose that it is in vain that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit which he has made to dwell in you? Your text is saying God jealously longs for the affection of his bride. He expects the one he has loved to love him back. Well, that's not some new truth. The Bible everywhere says that God is a jealous God. Exodus 20 in the second commandment, I, the Lord, am a jealous God. Exodus 34 makes it even more clear. Do not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous 
is a jealous God. This isn't an evil kind of jealousy. We know about evil kind of jealousy. This is a righteous jealousy. This is the Lord expecting from his bride what's promised in the wedding vow, marriage vow, the love that's given. Because God has joined himself, not just in a physical union, the two will become one flesh, but in a spiritual union with his people. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 6. He said, it is said the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Married to the Lord by our spirit being joined with his and his spirit being given to us and therefore God, the jealous God, expects to be loved as he loves us. God loves us like his bride. Oh, what a truth. Unfathomable love, unfathomable obligation. Whatever is the greatest love you've ever felt for another human being, the love for a child, the love for a spouse, God's love is greater than that. It's the, our, our human love only suggests, only hints at the intensity of his love. For the little child, abandoned child, he rescued and grew up to marry, which is how he describes his people. Do you know the kind of love from God? Sometimes we reduce the faith down to God's in heaven. He's given us a set of rules and we're trying to keep the rules. Do you know that God loves us like that? Now there's a sense in which all that's introduction. It, that's not the main thrust of our text, but you have to understand something about God loving us as his bride and how that whole Bible unpacks that for us before you can understand the real point of the text, which comes in the second truth that we want to learn here. God loves us as his bride, so secondly, stop flirting with the world. Stop flirting with the world. Some of you have known the pain of watching your wife or your husband break his or her marriage vows and begin to have an affair with someone else. To turn the love that was promised to you toward someone else. This has to be one of the most bitter experiences a person can ever endure. I've not experienced this. I can only imagine the ugliness, the betrayal, the pain. That's what God says that his people do to him. His bride, for whom he gave himself. Look at verse 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? You adulterous people. Nothing else is strong enough to express what it means for us to turn away from God 
and to begin to love and flirt with and serve and commit ourselves to other things. It's like having an affair in unfaithfulness to our spouse. Let me go back to Ezekiel because the story in Ezekiel isn't over. You remember? Let me pick up here where we were. You became beautiful and rose to be a queen. Your fame spread through the nations on account of the beauty and splendor that I've given you. Verse 15. But, God speaking to his bride, but you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favors on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. You also took the fine jewelry I gave you, the jewelry made of my gold and silver, and you made for yourselves male idols and engaged in prostitution with them. And you took your embroidered clothes and put them on them, on the idols. And you offered my oil and incense before them. Also the food I provided for you, the fine flour, the olive oil, the honey, I gave you to eat, you offered as fragrant incense before them. That's what happened, declares the Sovereign Lord. And you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. In all your detestable practices and your prostitution, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, kicking about in your blood. What a terrible path. God watching as his precious, beautiful bride, whom he had adorned with every good thing, took those good things and served other gods. That's how God sees our flirtation with the world. The world. John talks about it. The the world filled with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The world, the corporate expression of all those hedonistic desires that verses 1 and 2 talked about. But we find that everybody's doing, everybody's serving themselves, everybody's going their own way. Everybody is just living for all the fun they can have and all the pleasure they can have and all the stuff they can gain. Everybody's doing it and it's acceptable and it's honorable. And so we do it too. Singing joyfully, what a fellowship, what a joy divine. You do your thing and I'll do mine. That's the world. God says, that's my enemy. It's my enemy. God's plan is you belong to me. You love me. You serve me. 
And I lavish my love on you. I'm in covenant. We keep covenant. Our text says you can't have it both ways. You can't have this love of the world and love of God at the same time. It's like having an affair. It's like flirting with another lover while saying I'm being faithful to my spouse. And so not surprisingly, James writes that to do so is to make ourselves the enemy of God. God says, stop flirting with the world. Against the backdrop of my love for my bride, he says, this, this flirting with the world is nothing less than spiritual adultery. Now, now we hate to look at our lives that way, don't we? We, we hate to think that our, our little commitment to gaining wealth and power and to promoting ourselves and to having the prestige and the attention and the approval of people around us. We, we hate to think of that as somehow an ugly thing. But God says, it's the other woman. He sees that commitment of our hearts to the things of this world as spiritual adultery. Well, this morning, I don't know what the details are of your flirtation with the world. I don't know exactly where the world seduces you, what it uses to try to capture your heart, but I do know that this is a daily temptation for you as it is for me. Today I call you to stop it. Stop flirting with the world. Maybe it's gone beyond flirting. Then stop the spiritual adultery. Break it off. Stop giving your heart, your love, your life, your hopes, your dreams to something beside the Lord, your spouse. Anything else God calls adultery. I want to give you an example of how this works out. This is a precious example to me. This is how I learned this lesson from my son. When Nathan was about a junior in high school, I think, maybe a sophomore, I'm not sure. One day I found him in his room with dozens of cassette tapes, you know, music tapes. Ten bucks a whack. Dozens of them strewn all about him. Sitting on the side of his bed, with a trash can between his knees, pulling tapes out, put him in the trash. Tape after tape after tape, hundreds of dollars worth of tapes in the trash. Son, what are you doing? Fathers ask that, you know. Son, what are you doing? And I especially ask you because in our home, maybe you don't do this in your home, I, it, it, shame on you if you don't. In our home, we monitored very carefully what came into that house, what got listened to on radios and, 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 and tape players and CDs in, in our home. 
So I knew for certain that there was no obscenity on any of those tapes. Those were not vile, filthy tapes. They were not Christian tapes. They were not obscene things. There was no profanity on those tapes. We didn't allow that in our house. No, Dad, it's not that. It's just that I can't allow these things to have my heart. And I can't separate out these things from my heart belonging to the Lord, so I've got to destroy them. I got rid of them. To which I said, good. Good. You see, it's not just that the world is an evil thing. The world's full of all kinds of things which in themselves may not be evil. A new pickup truck is not evil. But if I love it, it's the enemy of God. I would be better to drive it off a cliff than to love it. Stop flirting with the world. God owns your heart. Now, if our text ended there, we would just be in despair, for who of us has not been unfaithful in our love for the Lord? And who of us can guarantee that we will never have our hearts drawn away again? But there's one more truth here. God restores the broken. I've watched a lot of marriages break up, unfortunately. And it's not pretty to see hopes and dreams dashed on the rocks and to see love, once tender and compassionate, turn into bitter and vindictive hatred. And yet it's such a common occurrence that we've just come to accept that that's how it is sometimes. Marriages get so bad that there's just no reason to stay together and people just leave beyond reconciliation. No hope. Not so with God. Not so with his bride. He restore the broken. Now make no mistake, God's restoration is not like we might expect. His resolution of a broken relationship is not what we kind of think. We, we sometimes, when we get into a divorce situation, just kind of reorder our goal. We say, well, if we can just part as friends. God says, nonsense. You don't commit spiritual adultery. You don't have an affair with the world, which is my enemy. You don't choose another, another lover and reject me in favor of him and part as friends. Oh, no. Judgment is coming. God says in verse 4, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. No, God's resolution involves repentance. Turn away from that lover. Humble ourselves and return to him unconditionally. Admit our guilt and seek forgiveness, not quibbling, not excusing ourselves. With a broken and contrite heart cast ourselves on his mercy. 
And he can demand such humility, for he has not broken his vow. We have. He does not share the guilt. The guilt is ours. Oh, but when we will come to humble ourselves and repent, look what happens. Verse 6. He gives us more grace. More grace. Why, it was grace that caused him to pick us up when we were bloody and kicking little abandoned infants. It was grace that caused him to love us. It was grace that lavished good things on us. But his grace is not exhausted yet. In grace, he takes his whoring wife back. Loves her again. Amazing. You remember the Old Testament prophet, Hosea? That's what his whole life is about. He married Gomer, and he watched her become a prostitute until she finally was sold into slavery, hit the bottom, a piece of meat to the highest bidder. And he went and bought her and brought her back into his home. God restores the broken. Paul hit the nail on the head when he says in Romans, where grace, where sin increased, grace increased even more. Or do you understand the impact of this? God will not have us to flirt with the world. He owns our hearts. He demands un conditional repentance or he will destroy us. There's no party, his friends. But to the one who's had enough, to the one who's come to the end of ourselves and will repent, turn around, he restores, he forgives, he makes new. Yet again. Jesus had no good news for the spiritually self-righteous, the upright, the religious, the Pharisees who were so certain how good they were. He only said, woe is you. But for the broken, the poor in spirit, the prostitutes, the sinners, the outcast, those who knew how desperate they were, he said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke. Oh, don't come on your terms. You come on my terms. Take my yoke. Learn of me. As Paul, or Peter says, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. You will find rest, Jesus says. Or as David put it, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O Lord, you will not despise. Amen. Dear Father, I pray that uh, 
whatever kind of flirtation we have with the world, whether it be our love of things or our pursuit of prestige and power, or maybe even, Lord, a, a, an affair itself, uh, unfaithfulness to our spouse, flirtation with the world in, in terms of flirtation with someone other than our wife or husband, whatever it be, Lord, give us grace to abandon, abandon such things. Grant to us broken and contrite hearts, which you do not despise, that we might be restored. Thank you for your promises that surround us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.